Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. Hope it's a good evening for all of you. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing introduction, and you can find him at his website at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife have an amazing website. I encourage you to check it out, listen to some of their stories, and kind of awaken a memory of the past that maybe has been resting inside of you you didn't even know was there. Mark has an amazing show tonight. He has two really cool guys, and I'm looking forward to both of them. It's um, it's very exciting, the people that Mark brings to the show and, and shares with all of us, and it certainly is uh, it's an, it's an indi- education, and it's an indication that, you know, we're, we're sort of remembering a past that, that we have lived in many ways and, and, and are returning again to an awareness of the antiquity that is in this country. It's a very exciting time, and he has amazing people. So, Mark, tell us what's going on tonight. Let's see. Well, we just found out uh, we all know each other. Yes. <laughs> or, broke brokering deals for okay we're we'll get you to come on sooner than we uh th- thought you know, for the uh part 2 and <laughs> i just got kind of a feeling that uh the original idea for the show you know might might just gone out the window uh <laughs> right before we went live but uh you know and that might happen again next week when we do our shows Tuesday uh, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> it's it's just uh, becoming uh, crazier and more fun each week. But uh, oh yeah, we it's going to be a lot of fun uh, this evening with our uh, guests. And um, you know, we don't have any uh, crocuses popping up yet, uh, even though we're well into March. But uh, I think our guest is going to be preparing us for arrival. And, and uh, uh, Jeffrey Wilson is a passionate 
researcher of America's prehistory. He's a crop circle researcher, event organizer at Ohio's Serpent Mound, founder of the Friends of the Serpent Mound in 2004. And you you can uh, check out all their uh, activities at the Friends of Serpent Mound Facebook page. So welcome, Jeffrey. How are you? Good. How are you, Mark? Um, Hi, Barbara. I'm Hi. Fine. Yeah. So, yeah, we. Um, yeah, might as well try to get started on the the main point of the show before we get uh, quickly segue into uh, crop circles. But uh, uh, yeah, you 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 have a intriguing. Uh, weekend conference coming up on what the uh, spring equinox, and this yep, is for it's a, a. It's a it's a multiple day event uh, starting on the on the equinox, so March twenty first through twenty fourth, and okay. uh, it is. <laughs> I didn't come up with the title. Uh, the Friends of Serpent is actually co-hosting this event with uh, a couple of other organizations, but the event is called the Serpent Mound Star Knowledge Seed and Water Music Peace Summit. <laughs> That's sort of wow. by committee by committee there. Um, and uh, this event uh, started out as a uh, spring equinox. Uh, seed event uh, a number of years ago, the Friends of Superman began it, and it has uh, sort of taken off and morphed as more people have gotten interested in it. Um, but uh, the the event is bringing in uh, people from all across the country. There are I don't know seventy five different speakers and uh, conference attendees. That most of them are. Native American uh, speakers and musicians and artists um, who are all converging on Serpent Mound to do a couple of things. One is um, there will be a seed blessing. And if I could explain why we do a seed blessing, I'll save that to the end. But but we'll, uh, we'll say that there's a seed blessing. There will be a water blessing. There will be a peace blessing, and uh, as a part of those three um, ceremonies, there will be uh, hosts of, of musicians and ceremonial uh, people. I think there's even a group of Aztec dancers that are coming up uh, from Mexico. Um, so it's wow. going to be it's going to be quite lively um, and international. Uh, it is an international event. Um, so uh, part of the Peace uh, Summit, the United Nations uh, is going to be involved with, we're going to have like a flag representative for every country in the world, uh, like 177 flags or something like that. And everybody will stand in a big circle with a flag from every country. And if you're interested in joining and taking part in that, uh, you can come early and get a flag and uh you know there'll be a big peace ceremony uh for that um 
There will be a number of the indigenous grandmothers, I think, that are going to be there on hand. Um, one, I think, is scheduled to do the water uh, blessing. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. I will be speaking on Saturday, um, doing a talk with Ross Hamilton, who I think was a guest of yours like a week ago or so. Mm-hmm. And um, that's right. He and I, he and I have done some joint talks together in the past, and so this will be a joint uh, talk that we're going to be giving. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. But if I could explain the seed blessing, part sure. of the reason that we began this event was due to a seed blessing, and this will tie into your uh, question about the, the crop circles. So um, back in 2003, there was a crop circle that appeared in a field uh, pretty much across the street from Serpent Mound. For your listeners who don't know what Serpent Mound is, Serpent Mound is a prehistoric um, mound that was constructed according to the latest carbon dating analysis, about 325 B.C. Um, so, you know, more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, and it, it was constructed in the shape of a serpent, which is why it's, you know, got the obvious name. So it's, it's a particular kind of mound. It's called an effigy mound. And a large... Uh, crop circle appeared in a field across the street from this mound um, back in August of 2003. And I subsequently, you know, I had visited Serpent Mound uh, a couple of times before that. I'm originally from Michigan. Serpent Mound is in southern Ohio. And I had been traveling around for a number of years um, investigating crop circles in throughout the Midwest. And we had a team of people who were interested in, I got a call from my now wife, uh, you know, sort of notifying me of this crop circle, asking if I'd be interested in coming down and, and investigating it, and which we did. The crop circle turned out to be not man-made. And uh, if anybody is interested in reading about that, uh, you know, results of all the scientific tests that we did on that crop circle, you can go out to um, iccra.org and uh, you'll find a report on that crop circle. Um, but uh, subsequently, the following year, the Friends of Serpent Man was organized um, because the owners of Serpent Mound at the time was the Ohio Historical Society. They subsequently changed their name, but um, at the time they were going through a severe financial crisis. And so they had pretty much laid off all the staff except one park manager and a guy to cut the grass. And so the Friends of Serpent Mound was organized as a group of local people who were interested in helping sort of maintain the site. And we got involved in helping design events for the general public and, uh, it's been pretty successful over you know the past uh-huh. uh, decade plus the following year in 2005 there was a book that was published by uh another um crop circle researcher his name is John Burke and 
John Burke and Kaj Hallberg wrote a book called Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. And I knew Burke through um, the crop circle work, but I had nothing to do with what he was working on for this book. And what it was was he traveled around um, into various parts of the world, and he went to ancient sites all across uh, the world, places like Stonehenge and Serpent Mound and others, and he made measurements of the uh, magnetic fields in these places, and they were very similar to the higher magnetic fields that he was finding inside crop circles. And as a part of his uh, work, along with a biophysicist uh, by the name of W.C. Levengood, who was another friend of mine, they um, found that these higher magnetic fields would change the properties of seeds so that they would grow better. And so uh, Burke's hypothesis was that um, ancient peoples would take their seeds to these uh, ancient earthwork sites and, and stone circle places and by exposing them to those higher magnetic fields, they would get their seeds to grow better. And he did a test at Serpent Mound where he took a group of seeds and he placed them on the mound for a period of time. He left a second batch of, from the same group of seeds back in a lab, and then they did some testing on them and showed that the plants, that, the plants uh, were all germinated and the ones that had been placed on the mat on serpent mound grew faster and were more healthy than the ones that were just left in the lab. And so uh, it's a fascinating book, a really interesting book. And we thought, Hey, it'd be kind of interesting to, you know, organize an event around having people bring their seeds to serpent mound for the spring equinox. And uh, you know, they can get their seeds, um, you know, sort of charged, uh, so to speak, by the mound. And um, it, it, the, the event just has grown year after year after year. And uh, so we've added additional, you know, aspects to the event uh, beyond just the sort of seed blessing aspect of it. But that's how it got started. Okay. And, and Jer- Jeffrey, what, what was the name of the uh, book again for our listeners? Seed of Knowledge. Stone of Plenty, and the author was, uh, the principal author is John Burke. Um, it is long out of print. If you can find a copy, uh, you'd be lucky to pay less than 100 bucks for it. I see it on, you know, if you can get a copy on eBay or something, they, they're going for big money now. Okay. So you, know, you were talking about the uh, magnetic properties of uh, the Serpent Mount. Now, mm-hmm. How does that tie into the mounds being built inside the meteorite crater? Now, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think I don't think we know enough about it. Um, you know, Burke only did the one you know study. Um, the Friends of Serpent Mound did a subsequent. You know, and the ICCRA did two sort of separate, independent, similar studies where we you know, placed seeds on the mound and, and, and tried to replicate his work with uh, similar effects. Um, but it's not 
it's not been very well studied. And and for your listeners that don't know, Serpent Mound is in a, a very unusual place geologically. Um, it sits inside what is known as the Serpent Mound Crypto Explosive Area Natural National Landmark. And what that is is a five-mile in diameter meteorite crater. Um, the, a meteor hit this area of Ohio about 200 million years ago and fractured the rock, uh, you know, like a spider web almost across this area to a depth of probably more than a mile. Um, so there are lots of interesting fault lines that run across the crater. There have been a number of geological studies of the crater that show there that the impact itself created a number of gravitational anomalies, a number of magnetic field anomalies, um, which have been mapped out. And Serpent Mound, uh, its placement in the landscape actually sits directly in between two of the magnetic field highs. And there are um, geologic fault lines that run right through the park. Uh, so it's, it's, we don't really know if Native Americans had any idea of the geology of the site when they put Serpent Mound in that specific place. But I suspect that um, there may be something to that idea. Um, they may not have known it as, you know, scientifically as we know it today, but they certainly would have recognized that there was something very unique about the environment here and, um, you know, probably noted it very specifically. Serpent Mound has um, been not very well archaeologically studied um, over the past century and a half since it was discovered by white people. Uh, there have only been less than a half a dozen archaeological um, studies ever done at Serpent Mound, and none of them have been very well done. The most recent one was a project called the Serpent Mound Project, headed up by the archaeologist Dr. William Romain, where they did some carbon dating of the serpent and got the best known dates, um, which place it, you know, as I said before, about 325 BC. However, there have been artifacts that have been excavated at the site that date all the way back uh, to the end of the last ice age. Um, and so there, it's been known that people have been at that location for at least 10,000 years. Wow, I I did not know that. To, and you know, there are also uh, right as you come into the parking lot, you have a couple more of the uh, conical burial mounds, and you know, if you, you, know, you go yeah. uh, to the gift shop, and you know beyond that is where the effigy mound is located. So you, you know you have all. Uh, you know, the, the 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 conical mounds there, right as you get out of the car, uh, that's really interesting. It, uh, and it, you also well, they're have inter they're interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one yeah. is that um, there are three main what you call conical mounds um, that kind of surround the parking lot. 
Um, there's one sort of to the east of the parking lot, one to the north of the parking lot, and one to the southwest of the parking lot. And each one of those appears to have been constructed at different times by different cultures of people. Um, so, for instance, um, the largest of the mounds, uh, which is to the east of the parking lot, uh, was built by the Adena culture, which is the same time period that Bill Romaine got the carbon dates that say Serpent Mound was built about 325 B.C. That is right in the middle of when the Adena culture was here in Ohio. The mound uh, to the north of the parking lot, uh, which is right next to the picnic shelter, which is a fairly small uh, conical mound, the burials in the upper portion of that had um, Hopewell culture um, sort of uh, stone uh, spear points. Um, and they, those were specifically made by the Hopewell people who were here in Ohio from about 100 B.C. to about 500 A.D. And so... Uh, you have two separate cultures that constructed two different mounds. Now, in the upper layers of the large conical mound built by the Adena, there were about 10 additional burials from a culture known as the intrusive mound culture. The only thing that's really known about that culture is that they used to bury their people into mounds that were built centuries before them. And they lived in Ohio between about 600 A.D. to about 1,000 A.D. And then there's the third conical burial mound, uh, which is out by the entrance gate. And that mound, the uppermost burial in that mound, had one uh, point, uh, stone point uh, buried with that person from the Fort Ancient culture. And those people, uh, that sort of life way um, began around 1100 A.D. and lasted up until probably the 15 to 1600s. And, but below that person in that conical mound were additional burials with artifacts that date back to the Archaic period. And the Archaic uh, is a very long period of time in Ohio that dates back from about 8,000 B.C. to about 1,000 B.C. And so there are people buried there from the Archaic, from the Adena, from the Hopewell, from the Intrusive Mound culture, and from the Fort Ancient culture. And then on top of that, there are about 40% of all the artifacts that were excavated at the site date back to that archaic period. But there have also been some artifacts that have been excavated there that date back to before the archaic period, what they call the Paleo-Indian period, which in Ohio is anywhere from about 18,000 B.C. to about 8,000 B.C., but more than likely probably at the end of the last Ice Age. Um, so, you know, People have been coming to that place for a very, very long period of time. Okay, and, and there's a uh, you know, aside from 
the you know, possible e- effects from the meteorite. You also have a lot of uh, water in the uh, area. You got you know the stream uh, going by uh, you know, over the hill. Another one uh, running in front of the serpent mound. Um, and I can see why you have a water ceremony there. But uh, what was the importance Well, if I could of, add to that, uh, okay. you know, water was particularly important to these ancient peoples. Um, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Brush Creek, which is a fairly significantly sized waterway, is to the west of Serpent Mound. There is a um, small creek that runs to the north of Serpent Mound that empties into Brush Creek. There is a spring just to the east of the mound, which runs into the creek to the north of the mound, which runs into Brush Creek. There is it. Uh, I I did a study uh, for uh, Dr. Romaine a, a couple of years ago, and within a one mile radius around Serpent Mound, there are 37 different springs. It's a lot wow. of water uh, in and around that uh, area, and um, so yeah, the park the park has several running springs. Um, you know, just within you know visual distance of the mound itself. Yeah, so, so, what does the or, or, or how did the builders of this effigy mounds? Interpret the snake, and you know, then you get the you know, eggs uh, or earthwork, uh, or you know, whatever that symbolizes. What, you, uh, what did that particular uh, symbol mean to the Adena uh, culture? So that's a complicated question, and. Um... What I would say is that um, most interpretations of Serpent Mound that I have read people write about are generally incorrect. Um, What Serpent Mound looks like today is not how it looked like when it was originally found by white people back in the mid-1800s. What people say is, you know, the it's a serpent swallowing an egg kind of thing is not exactly true for the simple fact that in the 1880s, Harvard came to Serpent Mound and they sent their uh, director of the Peabody Museum from Harvard to do excavations there. And he excavated for three straight summers and the fourth summer, then he reconstructed Serpent Mound. He put it all back together the way he thought it should look. Um, but he significantly changed some features, particularly around the head of the serpent and the oval that's up there that people call the egg. In actuality, if you go back to what Serpent Mound looked like from people who did surveys of it before Putnam got there in the 1880s, the it was actually a concentric oval that was actually connected to the head. It was like an oval within an oval. And so it was all one self-contained thing. It wasn't that there was these open jaws swallowing the egg. That 
that is what it looks like today, but it's not what it looked like originally. It was all originally just one connected piece. So that's a sort of a misinterpretation that's out there. Mm-hmm. I think, though, what people are now starting to land on about what Serpent Man really is, is by going back and paying attention to um, the uh, Native American oral traditions um, and ethnographic, you know, writings of of um, people who, you know, talk to the Native Americans who were in this in this area for, you know, uh, in the in the early you know 1700s and such. And it appears that the stories seem to be most related to the serpent are the stories about what's known as the great horned serpent. And the great horned serpent was one of the principal sort of um, mythological beings that lived in the underworld. So you got to think about uh, the prehistoric people's sort of cosmological view of the of the universe there's the plane of existence that we live on and then there is an upper sky world that's generally um the principal deities that sort of rule that are the thunderbirds there's usually four thunderbirds and then there is the underworld and one of the principal deities of the underworld is the great horned serpent and what's interesting about uh, the Great Horned Serpent and the Thunderbirds is that they seem to be sort of uh, diametrically opposed to one another. There is a tradition that every single year the Thunderbirds would start off in the northwest in the spring and then move southeast later in the summer in their quest to kill the great horned serpent. Um, the only way they could kill the great horned serpent was to shoot a fiery arrow through the head of the serpent, you know, from their lightning, um, which would shoot out of the eyes of a thunderbird. And if they were successful in killing the great horned serpent, then the earth was renewed for another year. And so there is this earth renewal ritual that takes place between the Thunderbirds and the Great Horned Serpent that keeps the world going. And that's part of the reason why we do the ceremonies that we do with the Seed Festival and the Peace Blessings is is part of this earth renewal ritual. It's it's close to Earth Day, you know, uh, kind of so to speak. So you know, we try to try to tie that in. I don't know if that. Okay. Directly answers your question or not, but uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's uh, uh, perfect. It's a, um, you know, uh, Barbara, do you want to uh, 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 jump jump in with anything or? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that people have used pyramid power to do the same thing. I know some stuff, you know, similar stuff has been done with, with some of the chambers as well. So there is definitely something to be said for this ancient earth energy that certain sites seem to be radiating that, that enhances seeds. And it probably has healing qualities, too, of, of other kinds. But um, I've not heard of any with the serpent mound, but that I'm not an expert on the serpent mound by serpent mound by any means. Right. 
Um, Serpent Mound is a really very sophisticated, uh, you know, uh, work of genius. Um, not only could there possibly be this sort of ancient technology uh, of constructing it in such a way that it would produce these healing, you know, energies um, or life-enhancing energies to the seed. Um, But it also serves as um, essentially a a giant uh, calendar for both the sun and the moon. Um, There there are astronomical alignments uh, incorporated into the design of Serpent Mound that are not really seen anywhere else in the world um, incorporated completely together. So you have all of the major uh, sunrise and sunset alignments. So you have uh, the equinox, spring and autumn, you know, it's the same alignment, but you have the equinox sunrise, you have the equinox sunset, you have the summer solstice sunrise, the summer solstice sunset, the winter solstice sunrise, the winter solstice sunset. And then on top of that, you also have um, all of the sort of key uh, dates for lunar uh, rises and lunar sets through the moon's 18.6 year cycle. So the northernmost moon rise, the lunar midpoint rise, the southernmost moon rise, and uh, in the corresponding moon sets. Um, there are also uh, planetary alignments incorporated within uh, Serpent Mound, which, which I, I used to teach physics and astronomy, and so I'm not surprised by it, but other archaeoastronomers seem to be caught off guard when I talk about this. But wherever you have a sunrise alignment, you also have a planetary alignment because planets go around the sun so they follow generally the same path across the sky that the sun does so for instance i confirmed a a venus sunset on the summer solstice a number of years ago and so you get generally all the visible planets so venus mars mercury jupiter and saturn those are the main visible planets Um, they also uh, fall along certain key alignments of the serpent and all of these alignments are what we call horizontal alignments um, because they deal with, you know, taking the mound and pointing to a specific point on the horizon where these objects would rise or set. Um, but there are also uh, a potential for Serpent Mound actually being laid out like a constellation of stars in the sky. And so, um, Ross Hamilton, I don't know if he talked about this when, when he was on your show, but a, a, a few years ago he um, hypothesized that Serpent Mound is laid out like the constellation of Draco. Um, and what's interesting about that is a few years ago I, I, I kind of challenged Ross a little bit about some of his archaeoastronomy ideas of laying out some of these mounds like uh, certain constellation patterns because – he was using all these Greek constellations, and I kept saying, well, you, you know, the Native Americans didn't connect the, the stars in the sky the same way as the Greeks did. You have to look at Native right. American constellations. And so it turns out that the grouping of stars that the Greeks called Draco 
actually, uh, if you go to uh, the Lakota or the Dakota, um, who say that they came from the Ohio Valley in their past, they seem to have retained the best of the star knowledge amongst almost all the tribes in North America. They have the best memory of what they their forefathers connected the sky, you know, uh, to in terms of their oral traditions. And they say that that grouping of stars is actually the Thunderbird. Now, what's interesting about that is if you overlay the Thunderbird pattern over Serpent Mound, it you know, all the stars line up. And so I put together a hypothesis that really says that Serpent Mound is kind of like a fusion of the Great Horned Serpent from the Underworld and the Thunderbird up in the upper sky world. And as they come together on our plane of existence, it's the one chance that, that you get to communicate with both the underworld and the sky world at the same time. Wow. Another interesting interpretation. And, and, and Jeffrey, I've heard about this um uh, extra coil that seems to ha- have been uh, uh, located uh, near the uh, head of uh, this effigy mound. Did yeah, that a few years ago. Add... Um, as, I'm sorry. As, a few years ago, as part of the Serpent Mound project headed up by Dr. William Romain, uh, one of the aspects of that project was they had. Um, uh, Dr. Jared Burks, another archaeologist, who did a magnetometer survey of Serpent Mount. And on the north side of the serpent, behind the head, before you get to the first bend in the body of the serpent, he appears to have found, um, through his magnetometer survey, the remnant of what used to be an additional bend in the body of the serpent, uh, which would have kind of went off to the north-northeast. And um, they did an excavation uh, to confirm that that was indeed there in the subsoil, and and they found some evidence that appears to be that at some point in the past, Serpent Mount had an additional bend to it. Um, They don't really know. They couldn't find anything to carbon date it, so they don't know when it was constructed or when it was erased. Um, But but Serpent Mount appears to have gone through at least – two phases of construction, not unlike, you know, Stonehenge, which went through a number of different phases during its, uh, you know, construction. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, it, you know, was, uh, you know, a researcher like uh, Bill Romain able to figure out if there was some kind of alignment associated with this coil, or is it just uh, you know just too speculative to ascertain uh, such a uh, well you know a a planetary people, alignment? Well, there's been a handful of people that have taken a look at, it, including myself, um, and the bend would have been much too far to the north to incorporate either a uh, solar or lunar alignment. They're all accounted for in the current bends of the body of the serpent. Um, 
And because it would have pointed uh, to the east side of the serpent, it wouldn't uh, necessarily – it would sort of break the pattern of the bends of the serpent. Generally, the bend in the body of the serpent points in the direction of the alignment where um, it's possible that if you went in the opposite way – of the open of opening of the bend in the body to the Western horizon, it would be fairly close to the winter solstice um, sunset, um, hmm. which is already accounted for um, through the spiral tail alignment, which I uncovered um, a couple of years ago. But I suspect that it's wholly different. Um, you know, if if you subscribe to Ross's idea of Serpent Mound laid out like the constellation of Draco or the Native American Thunderbird, um, there is one star in that constellation that doesn't actually fall along the body of the serpent. It actually falls in the open area just behind the neck of the serpent and around in the first bend of the serpent. And that would have been the star Alpha Draconis. And Alpha Draconis was um, important in prehistoric times, uh, dating all the way back to the time of the pyramids, because at one time, Alpha Draconis, popularly known as the star Thuban, uh, was actually the north star in the sky. It was the star in which all the other stars rotated around. Uh, today, that star is Polaris, the North Star, um, but, you know, a, a couple of thousand years ago, it wasn't you know, you know, because of very slow drift in, in the sky due to uh, a, a process known as precession of the equinoxes, um, the star Alpha Draconis was actually that star. And so Ross placed that star, you know, on on the map on the overlay, and it it fell in between you know the the bend and the body of the serpent. All the rest of the stars line up on the serpent, but that star actually is would be the midpoint of the serpent itself. You could measure a point from that spot to the tip of the serpent uh, and the head, and then out to the tip of the serpent at the tail. And they're equidistant. It actually marks the center point of the serpent itself. Now, if that is accurate and true, then that missing coil, that bend that you're talking about, may have pointed to the rising of the constellation of Draco or the Thunderbird. Um, it points to the location on the horizon where the north celestial constellations rise. Uh, and so it could be pointing to that, um, but it's purely speculative and, and I don't think we'll ever, you know, be able to nail it down for sure. Okay. And, you know, Jeffrey, if, um, you know, people were you know, going to be making their way to the Serpent Mound in southern Ohio in a uh, couple weekends. Um, you know, depending on which, you know, if they're coming from the east, you're going to be going through uh, Chillicothe. Um, you know, there's you know, just a 
a lot of things uh, going on in the Chillicothe area. Uh, you know, we uh, worked together on the uh, Junction Group, and you know, that was where we met uh, what four or five years ago. Um, right. You know, got the World Heritage uh, nomination going on. So you know, the the that whole uh, you know Paint Creek. Uh, valley and you know, making your your way uh, down to the Serpent Mound is you know just really uh, packed full of all this fascinating uh, prehistory. You know, it, it, and if people have uh, you know time to you know, stop at uh, Mound City or the Site Mound, um, you know. All this is uh, being nominated for the World Heritage uh, status. Uh, what is going on with such a prestigious nomination for you know, this uh, uh, rural uh, setting? Well, um, first of all, I, w- I would say that um, there are two separate nominations. Um, there is a, a nomination for the Hopewell culture, which includes a number of earthwork sites such as um, Mound City, which is in Chillicothe, um, the Hopeton Earthworks, which is across the river, um, across the uh, Scioto River from Mound City. It includes um, the uh, Sipe Mound Earthworks, which is uh, in the Paint Creek Valley, which empties into the Scioto River, which is west of Chillicothe in a little town called Bainbridge. It includes the Hopewell Earthworks, which is on another fork of the Paint Creek um, to the northwest of uh, Chillicothe. It includes Fort Ancient, which is a wholly different type of earthwork, but that is sort of more on the west side of the state, north of Cincinnati, uh, in Warren County. And it includes the Newark Earthworks, which is kind of up in the sort of east, northeast center of the state of Ohio, east of Columbus. All of those collectively have been put forward as a nomination. Um, and that is um, they're at sort of the top of the United States' list, which is uh, created by the National Park Service, submitted by the State Department to uh, UNESCO, which is uh, the United Nations uh, you know, Group for Cultural Preservation and Education. The second nomination is Serpent Mound by itself, and that's farther down on the UNESCO list of 20 um, sites. Every 20 years, the, the uh, National Park Service is charged with creating a list of sites to be submitted by the State Department to UNESCO for uh, consideration to become a World Heritage Site. What I would say is that uh, the likelihood of that happening is low. And the reason I say that is, Back in the early 1990s, um, during the first Bush administration, Congress passed a law and Bush signed it, which said that um, 
if any international organization admits Palestine, the Palestinians, as a separate nation, then the United States cannot contribute money to that organization. Well, a few years ago, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago now, um, UNESCO actually admitted the Palestinians as a member state in the UNESCO organization, which kicked off the law that says now the United States cannot contribute any money to UNESCO. And so now you know, the United States is in arrears of something like six or $700 million in their annual dues to UNESCO. And eventually, um, you know, basically got suspended. Well, once uh, Donald Trump became elected president, one of the first things they did, uh, Donald Trump's or, uh, you know, administration did was they pulled the United States out of the UNESCO um, treaty. So we're not, the United States is not even a member of UNESCO any longer. Uh, not just that we didn't pay our dues and got suspended, we're actually now out. So I don't know what UNESCO's policy is about approving UNESCO World Heritage Sites to a country that is not even a member and doesn't pay dues. Um, so I don't know what the likelihood of, of that nomination going forward is. Um, there seems to be a lot of hope in the Ohio Valley that, that it's going to happen, but um, I suspect that geopolitical forces are such that that probably isn't going to happen. Um, but, you know, I could be wrong. We'll see. Okay. All right. And, um, you know, we're uh, about, you know, we have about nine, ten minutes uh, left in in, in our uh, chat, um, and you know, h- how can people get get a hold of you if they have um, you know questions? Um, you know, con- contact you. Uh, you well, know, about, I would say um, what, there you can get a hold of us through uh, serpentmound.org that is the Friends of Serpent Mound's website, serpentmound.org or you can look up Friends of Serpent Mound on Facebook um, and you'll find uh, Friends of Serpent Mound there and you can contact us through either one of those uh, places it's probably the easiest way and we're really a great group of people who get together there uh you know the summer solstice uh celebration a couple of years ago was a lot of fun uh, it's just yeah you, you, know, spoke, uh, you spoke there um yeah. it, it's uh all of these events are family friendly and uh you know they're there to to uh educate people on these uh prehistoric peoples that were here and, you know, fun and exciting other things like, uh, you know, you mentioned the crop circles. There have been lots of talks on those. Uh, the Friends of Superman has hosted a Mysteries Day in the past. Uh, we'll talk about various aspects of mysteries around the site. Um, there are, uh, every year there is a an event to, uh, to watch the Perseid meteor shower uh, because 
Silver Mound sits in one of the darkest areas in Ohio, so it's a nice dark sky site. Come out and see the Milky Way and watch, the, you know, shooting stars. Um, there's just a lot of fun kind of activities. We have an upcoming mound tour that uh, the Friends of Serpent Mound is doing this year. Um, we actually have two, one in the spring and one in the fall. The spring one is in April, um, and uh, that is going to um, – go and visit a number of mound sites that you mentioned in around Chillicothe and basically starting at Serpent Mound and, and hitting a number of mound sites on the way to Chillicothe. Um, so it, that's going to be a, a fun excursion. We haven't set the itinerary for the fall one yet, but I suspect it'll probably be from Serpent Mound over to Cincinnati and visit a number of mound sites that direction. Um, so we're probably going to build on, on these tours and go in different directions out from Serpent Mound, uh, you know, uh, twice a year. So there's lots of, lots of fun stuff, uh, you know, a lot of music to experience and, uh, it'll be a good time. Okay. And, you know, if you want to get the kids involved in, uh, you know, Really, really ancient uh, stuff. You can just dr- drive a couple miles down the street and stop in and see Tom at the House of Fake Cops. Huh, right. Yeah, Tom Johnson runs uh, the House of Fake Cops, which is uh, located in Locust Grove, Ohio. Um, it's about four miles from Serpent Mound. Uh, Tom and his wife, Terry, uh, are very much in, uh, involved in this spring seed uh, festival. Uh, they're, they're largely uh, taking the lead on the organization of it uh, this year. And uh, Tom, I believe is going to be giving a talk about the meteor crater uh, during the event. Uh, he is, uh, he runs a rock shop called the house of fake cops. And uh, if you're interested, he um, has in his rock shop, uh, a, Basically, an entire runs the entire length of the shop are all of his original museum displays that used to be in the Smithsonian for decades um, about trilobites and all of the trilobites that he finds um, he finds in Adams County and and their world class uh, you know fossils and so he has all kinds of amazing you know really really ancient uh you know fossils that uh that come from from uh the area where serpent mound is uh and uh, so that's a that's an interesting sort of side stop if you want to come out to visit serpent mound. oh yeah tom tom has interesting yeah. stories maybe uh terry will do some singing we'll try to work yeah, on terry her is, uh 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 she is a an award-winning native american uh singer and uh she incredible music check them out online yeah uh yeah we'll work on her when you make your return appearance in early june (laughs) okay okay so um all all that's coming up you know despite the snow it's, it, hopefully it's going to be gone by then. But uh, yeah, well, it, it's, it's going to be a little weather forecast. Um, 
it snowed two days ago here, and uh, the temperatures have been uh, between 10 and 20 degrees. So oh. there's still snow in the ground around here. However, the, the current forecast is by Sunday it's supposed to get up to 60. Uh, so I would think by, uh, you know, we've got a couple of weeks out before this event. I, I think that it'll probably warm up. Uh, but you should dress appropriately for the weather. Uh, you never know what uh, what spring weather is going to bring. Okay. And and. Do do people uh, need to bring uh, th- their own seeds, or their seeds uh, there, uh, you know, to sell or you know, ha- hand out? Uh, uh, I'm I'm not sure about the vendor list. As the if there's anybody that is uh, selling seeds at the event. Uh, but I would suggest that if you want your seeds bust, you bring your own seeds. Uh, basically, <laughs> what happens is you bring them, and then everybody walks over to Serpent Mound, and they put them on the mound for a period of time, and they do the blessing, and then everybody takes their seeds back with them. Um, you know, so it's your own stuff to to, to bring. Um, I know uh, a few years ago we had gotten some donated by a seed company, but I'm not sure that they're sponsoring anything this year. So I, I don't know. Um, I, I haven't seen what the who, who's on the vendor list this year. Okay. And, and what do the um, native grandmothers uh, talk about? Uh, just you know, renewal and guiding believe, the next generation. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure of the eventing, uh, but let me take a quick look. I think that Mary Lyons, uh, who is an Ojibwa, um, is coming uh, down from up north, um, from Michigan, I think. Um, she will be the grandmother in charge of the water blessing. I'm pretty certain she's done the water blessing in the past. Um, so I suspect that she'll probably do it again if she, if she's there. Um, I, I don't see, they have a lot of the people listed on the event page, but they don't really say all of the people that are involved with doing various things. Now on the spring equinox itself, that's the first ceremony will be the night of the super full moon. (laughs) And so they're going to have a super full moon ceremony with a a number of people. Um, That's going to take place about six 30. And then the formal formal sort of opening ceremony will be led by chief golden light Eagle. He's a Lakota. Um, That'll be on Friday morning at 9 a.m. And then uh, there's going to be some flute players and some drummers uh, throughout Friday. Um, My wife will be speaking Friday afternoon. She's going to be talking about uh, events that Friends of Superman have done in the past, why this spring event is taking place. Um, I'm looking for the water blessing and I uh, the World Peace Flag Ceremony is going to be at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. Um, so if you want to come out and participate and hold hold a world, you know, a country flag uh, during that, 
I think we need 177 people for that. So that'll be a, you know, there'll be a lot of people on hand to do that one. Um, I don't see the water blessings specifically listed on here, but I know there will be one at some point. Okay. And, um, yeah, you know, Jeffrey, we're you know, kind of wrapping things up. No we problem. need to uh, get our second hour guest on. Uh, but this is the being uh, the, the seed and water and peace blessing is being held at the Serpent Mound March 21st through the 24th. Uh, just br- bring the family and just. Have a great time. Uh, you know, there's you know places to stay not too far away. So it, it, it's it's a uh, you know really nice day out for the family. Yeah, if you're coming a long it, distance, uh, it's quite the pilgrimage to come out. <laughs> so, but yeah, a lot, a lot of good people. It, 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 uh, it, it's informative. Uh, it, it, it's it's worth the trip, and if you don't uh, make it uh, this spring, uh, you're going to have the summer solstice uh, going on in June as well. So, um, you know, uh, Barbara, how, how, how are we doing with our second hour guest? I mean, she's trying to uh, get getting him set up. But um, I, I got him, Mark. He's here. Okay, okay. So, uh, well, I'll hand the baton off to uh, to Richard Thornton, and you can pick up with him. Okay. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, uh, th- thank you, and uh, for being our guest, and be- best of luck for all the activities you have coming up, and you know uh, you'll be back soon to expand upon your crop circle research and uh, the summer solstice uh, 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 conference you have coming up as well. So, Okay, sounds good. We'll chat soon. Great. Th- th- thank you so much, Jeffrey. All right. Okay. So, mm-hmm. All right. So now our, our listeners in Stockholm are – uh, really going to enjoy our second hour guest. Uh, we have uh, Richard Thornton for the second hour. He is a architect, a museum exhibit designer, city planner in uh, northeastern Georgia. And you know, while planning where the water pipes are going, you know, he's, he's come across some interesting artifacts. It makes us need to question the accuracy of you know what is in our history books. Uh, he studied in uh, Mexico and Sweden, so um, you know, let's you know, bring Richard on. How, how 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 are you doing tonight, Richard? Hello there. I'm doing fine, thank you. Yes, I Great. worked in Lundsgren, Sweden, when I right after I graduated from Georgia Tech. Cool. Yeah, so I, I know Sweden. I've, I've been through the entire length of Sweden all the way to uh, Lapland, so uh, I know the country well. Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, the, uh, they uh, they're 
are some people in Sweden who are some of our biggest supporters. You know, we I just wanted. Uh, well, I'm going to have a very a, interesting story for you tonight, Mark, about my experience in Sweden. It's what started my interest in the uh, ancient rock works. We'll get to that later in my presentation, okay. but they, I think they'll find it very interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's, and you know, uh, speaking of all, all these rocks, we're going to be talking about. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, we really haven't uh, gotten into a whole lot of uh, example. You know, you know, we've talked maybe a little bit about you know the Adena tablets, and you know, maybe like the a little bit of writing on those. Uh, ball stones, you know, found at uh, America's Stonehenge, but it's, you know, it really hasn't been part of um, you know, Nightlight Part Two's uh, repertoire. So, um, you know, you wanted to get into the Dare Stones, so that's uh, you know, you're introducing a whole new topic uh, uh, to our listeners. You know, I, I don't really know a whole lot about it other than the Vieira brothers uh, you know ha- had a little series on that uh, subject so you know let's get into uh, you know these dare stones uh, where were they found they were found in a line uh, that runs from northeastern North Carolina to the Nacoochee Valley in northeast Georgia. I'd like to insert this, though. Listeners should understand, I am a Creek Indian. In fact, I was just elected principal treat of the Coweta Creek tribe here in the southeast. And so my perspective is we're talking about many times uh, structures and town sites that could have been built by my ancestors. So there's a personal involvement in our research Mm -hmm. work. It's it's more than the abstract uh, matter of study of history. Now, the story of the Dare Stones, first we have to draw back for our uh, international listeners. Uh, the first attempt by England to colonize North America was on Roanoke Island in uh, what was then part of North Carolina and Virginia, which is all called Virginia. Uh, the first two attempts failed. Uh, they went home. The third attempt, they were cut off from England because of a war with Spain. And when the supply ship finally was able to reach the colony, there was no one there. They come in, and all they knew was they'd carved on a a, a tree croton, which was a a message to let them know that they'd gone to the croton village. But none of the members of the colony were ever found. Then in the late 1930s, a tourist from California found a stone in North Carolina, perhaps in Virginia, right along that area near the coast, that was written in Elizabethan English, which was the language spoken in England during the late 1500s, saying that the survivors of the colony had had gone across and they'd been attacked by hostile Indians and some had survived and they were going to stay with friendly Indians. That stone was deemed at the time to be authentic. Then uh, that triggered the 
development of a very popular outdoor drama called The The Lost Colony, which still plays today on Roanoke Island and was a major tourist attraction, okay? Then all of a sudden, stones started popping up across the Carolinas and Georgia that were written in Elizabethan English also that showed that the survivors had gone to the Nakushi Valley in Georgia, uh, which everybody who didn't know our history thought it was a bizarre story to start with. They were initially thought to be authentic, and in the process, a college in Georgia started an outdoor drama based on the survivors who came to the Coochie Valley, which also was drawing a lot of tourists. And at that point, the state of North Carolina invested time in some subterfuge to try to discredit the other stones. And as a result, the people in Georgia were called frauds. Everything was quickly forgotten, and the whole aspect of that part of the story of the colony was erased from the history books. Okay, this is... Now, I have to explain first what we are doing, rather than just talking about the Darestones. What we are doing, uh, it's called the Appalachian Foundation, is going back and finding archaeological sites and artifacts that were discovered by highly respected archaeologists in the 1800s and 1900s and then have been forgotten, completely forgotten. In in fact, no one knows they're there, even though they have official site numbers. No one knows they're there. So that's how I got into the Darestones. I was investigating the sites studied by Robert Walshup in 1939 in the Nakuchi Valley. And what I found out was the the story you read about the Dare Stones in all the references, and even in the book about the Dare Stones, is totally wrong. There was a, a clearly planned concealment of what the actual facts were. What actually happened was that Washup went door-to-door in the Nakuchi Valley uh, to talk to families to see what artifacts they they had in their possession. This is a valley that's been densely populated by humans since the Ice Age. I mean, it was door-to-door villages up until the 1700s, very dense uh, metropolis. So everybody had tons of artifacts. But he started being shown tablets with Elizabethan writing on them that it, many of them had been in the family for generations, uh, going back to the early 1800s, where they'd, they'd found them on their farm, or uh, in several cases they'd actually found them in uh, burial tombs. The, the Creeks dug tombs in the sides of mountains, like kind of like the Israelis did, or the, the Jews did, that, and then sealed it with stones. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, they didn't. people aren't told this in the history books. They don't realize there were different types of burial customs. Well, um, Robert Washup realized he had something important because he had, he started reading these things and realized this is the, the Dare Party. These were the survivors of Roanoke. In fact, he found Eleanor Dare's burial tomb, literally. He, he found the grave marker inside the tomb. There was no skeleton left. It had been robbed, but the stone was still there marking the tomb. Then uh, he found about 30 feet in front of him the directions like a sign written in the creek writing system, not in English, but the creek writing system, uh-huh. telling them that this was the burial place of Eleanor Dare and her daughter. She died, I think it was in 1591. 
Then a little bit later, he found another stone that marked the point where she had lived. And we know where that is. In fact, there's still stone runs there. And I have photographs of it. Uh, and in total, he gathered around 20 of these tablets in the list beef in English, two of them he had found himself. He arranged for scientists from uh, Harvard University, where he was, had graduated in archaeology, to come down here. And they determined that these 20 tablets were indeed authentic. And since that time, and, and just recently, other geologists have also determined that these tablets are authentic. Well, then what happened was that we can't prove anything, but it seems to be North Carolina economic development interests were behind this. They, they did some fake tablets that were obviously fake. They were, they were so bad they were made to look fake where no one would take them seriously. Then they hired <laughs> a, a writer to only dwell on the fake tablets that were found in, near Atlanta and were obviously not the real thing. He only mentioned them, and then he used those as an excuse to say that all the tablets were fake and that so the whole story of them coming to the Coochie Valley should be discounted because it was a, it was a fraud. And in, he did it in such a cruel way in an article in the Saturday Evening Post that uh, it just ruined the career of the president of Bernal College, where the stones are to this day now stored. So it's all been erased from history, and in fact, we have absolute proof from Robert Warship that the survivors of the Roanoke Colony came to the Coochie Valley because it was the most advanced Native American culture in North America. They were very friendly with the English and with the French. They had been converted to French Protestant Church, and so they would protect... English refugees from the Spanish. So it all made sense. They went there to be safe during the war between Spain and England. That's just one example of how the history has been falsified, concealed, covered up, whatever, and it's just an endless story that we deal with here, at least in the Deep South, maybe it's the whole United States, of archaeologists in the current generation being complicit with bureaucrats and other people to cover up the true history that was uncovered by previous generations of archaeologists. Okay, and you know, Richard, you were you know, just talking about you know, the research that you have to do as you know, uh, uh, being a uh, city planner, and you know, one. Example that uh, you uncover uh, a uh, documentation that you helped to straighten out was the uh, Soqui site where yes you know, the the uh, you know there's a, a stone mound. Uh, Documented at one place near near a post office. Uh, can can you pick up the story from there and explain yeah. how okay. in, in things change over time? This is this is a project. It's our current project. In fact, we've been very frustrated this winter because we've had rain every weekend or snow <laughs> since November first. We hadn't been able to go out as a, much at all because of the. We had one weekend where we could go out and we did made a major discovery that weekend. But anyway, what, what happened was that in, 
1886, Cyrus Thomas, who was chief archaeologist for the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., came down to Georgia because he'd been hearing reports of many stone ruins in Georgia. And he focused in an area that, that was at that time um, very sparsely populated. But in, while here, he identified over 100 stone structures. And he made a report on those structures. He also found some con- conventional earthen mounds. And it was published in by the Smithsonian. I have a copy of it now. And then in the 1920s, uh, well, let's, let me intercept first that he used the post office in a town called Sochi as his benchmark for telling where all the other structures were. And in fact, there was a Mesoamerican ball court built out of stone next to the post office. Wow. Well, in the ni- I mean that that's why there were there were the the ancient Indian town was exactly where the town of Soki was. So he used the post office as his benchmark for describing the locations of many of the other items. Well, what happened was in the nineteen twenties a new postmaster changed the name of the town to where he was the same name of the town that he was born in Virginia. He named it changed it from Soki to Batesville. And then when Robert Warship came in 1939, he couldn't find Soki on the maps, and so he went to Saltee, which is about 10 miles away, and couldn't find any stone structures like what was described. And he found earthen structures, but then he, he was unable. So these all these things became lost. They became forgotten over time. Even the archaeologists in Georgia didn't know they exist. And so our project right now is to, as best as we can, get the exact locations and photographs of these stone ruins that were discovered by the Smithsonian in, in 1886. We're going to put it on a GIS base map and uh, give it to the state historic preservation people and also the National Park Service. So we'll finally have an accurate record of where these sites are. But in the process, I've made some other discoveries myself that that the Smithsonian missed, uh, I found a uh, large Mesoamerican ball court that's 314 feet long and 145 feet wide. It's horseshoe-shaped. It has banks on the side for the uh, onlookers for the sport. In other words, you could put an American football field on on this thing. Uh, Very visible and in perfect condition. You can see it from the air satellite. And in the ground, once you get there, you realize, hey, this thing still here, still has a flat bottom. We also found a shrine inside a cave that is made out of quarried stone. Uh, I don't have no idea what the age of it is, but we photographed and documented it. There's some type of worship site uh, with an altar. Uh, we've also found the ruins of ancient houses on mountaintops that are made with quarried stone that are predate white occupation. So this is the type of thing that's going on. This is a project that's underway right now. Uh, it certainly is not complete, but in the process of identifying the sites that the Smithsonian found, we're also finding many new sites. Okay. Uh, you know, we have to stop for a minute and talk about this uh, ball court. That sounds uh, fascinating. Uh, 
I, you know, I've heard that you know one of the uh, native you know, pastimes, you know, sporting activities was uh, uh, lacrosse. I I didn't know about this uh, ball court. That actually sounds like it's. Uh, was you know, uh, ca- came from uh, Central America. Yes. Well, let me explain. Oh, I, I guess we have if we have people from other countries, they aren't going to know this at all. The, most of the branches of the creeks came from Mesoamerica, from Mexico, Central America. Some of the branches came from uh, Peru. We have no. Oh. No genetic connection with most of the American Indians in the United States. When I like also, when I had my gen, gen, genetic test, it came back I was I was Mesoamerican, Maya, and Polynesian. No American Indian. So um, my you know I'm classified. That's typical of Creeks. We're classified as a as a Mesoamerican tribe, not a North American tribe. That is our heritage. Uh, but in particular, oh. the the Shoki, which is the correct pronunciation, if you're Soaking, they have a migration legend that takes them from southern Mexico to Georgia. Uh, their descendants are known as the Mikosuki, and they're in southern Florida now. But they uh, they were openly state they are the descendants of the Olmec civilization. Wow, huh? But they mm-hmm. openly say, in fact, it's the, where they came from was where the Olmec civilization was. And they have cousins there, the Shoki, in Mexico, still down there too. Same name, same language. Um, so what we're finding are the same type of ball courts as you find in Olmec sites, in Olmec cities. Uh, it was a game played with a bat, not with a lacrosse type thing, and had poles. And you would hit a rubber ball or a leather ball around until you could knock it into a pole and hit the pole. So that's the original Mesoamerican ball game. It, in some ways, it's more like uh, cricket, say, because the, the the bat they use looks something like a cricket bat, and in possibly had some some characteristics of American baseball too. We aren't sure. There are pictures of it being played at Tetawakon too. That that particular type of game. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, these m- migrations uh, uh, puts all this into perspective with the uh, ball court. I yeah, that uh, that's uh, n- new to me. Probably, I'm sure it is uh, with a lot of our listeners. And you know the the, the language similarities that you just mentioned. You know, it it uh, it gets some of the. Uh, you know, when uh, Dennis Stone was our guest a couple months ago, you know, uh, you know, we spoke a little bit about some of the dimensions of uh, Poverty Point, or the uh, had the same uh, standard u- unit of measurements that has been found at. Uh, contemporary sites in Central America, you know, basically a megalithic yard. So uh, uh, all those, all this migration information that you're talking about is, you know, 
you know, helping us to paint a uh, you know, better uh, picture of you know the Gulf Coast region and all these uh, ancient migrations going uh, coming up from the south and moving into Louisiana and Georgia. Well, it's a two-way migration, and and it's it's and this is a book. Wow. It's not it's not. I mean, I, I what I have to explain to people. I have no theories. Okay, I have never had any theory, but I follow the evidence where it leads me, and that leads mm-hmm. me open to making things that I would never would expected. What we have found here in Georgia is a, this called the track rock petroglyphs, and on the, the the largest collection of petroglyphs in the southeastern United States. All but two of them are identical to petroglyphs at New Shipping, Sweden, on the Baltic coast. And those in New Shipping have been dated to 2000 B.C. That's really now, old. That's really old. They're identical. There's no, it's not kind of like they're the same symbols. And they're very unique. Actually, that's the early Bronze Age in, in Scandinavia, and that type of petroglyph was not seen later on in uh, the middle and late Bronze Age in Sweden. And I guess the Swedish people are wondering why I know is because Lundskrona was the heart of the Bronze Age Scandinavia. So I was heavily inundated. With that, I was working on a project on Veen Island, which was a Bronze Age capital, you know, in the Urusund Channel. So mm-hmm. I, I never dreamed I'd be finding the same symbolism in Georgia, but it's kind of a trick of fate that who would have thought, you know, that four decades later, things I'd seen in the province of Skona in southern Sweden would be showing up on rocks in Georgia. Well, that's part of the story, but here's the rest of the story. On those new shipping petroglyphs include some of the most important glyphs of the Maya writing system. They also appear in the North Georgia petroglyphs, which leads us now to think, uh, now the Maya's migration legend is they came from a land of ice and migrated southward until they came to a place where there was no, no ice and no snow. So that is what we're finding is the earliest forms of the Maya writing system are actually in uh, in these Georgia mountains, but they themselves are derived from the writing system in Sweden at New Shipping. So it appears that the Mayas came through Georgia and Florida in order to reach Yucatan, since the, evidently the the Georgia petroglyphs are older than the Maya writing system, yet they contain... Maya symbols on them that we can translate, and and those same symbols can be found in Sweden during the early Bronze Age, 2000 BC. Wow! And, and it's, yeah, it's wow. But that's the type of thing you get into when you don't have a theory. I just we just follow the evidence. We have no preconception. I would never have dreamed that I'd be telling you this a year ago, but there's no question about it. We also have found. Petroglyphs in Norway, is Westford and Isford, that portray a ceremony that's found in in uh, Veracruz, Mexico, 
in which four men dressed as birds uh, suspend themselves from a cord and wrap around a pole. That's the Totenax. Well, here we are in, in southern Norway. Uh, there is a carving on rocks showing that ceremony and showing a group of Scandinavians watching it and then having to flee back to the ships because they're being chased by Indians shooting arrows at them. Now, this is in Norway, which tells me, and it told a lot of us, that in, in the Bronze Age there was much more communication between Scandinavia and Ireland and North America than anybody can imagine. Many of the so, other uh, petroglyphs, many of the other petroglyphs in North Georgia, are identical to those in southwestern Ireland and southern Sweden from all periods of time. They're Bronze Age, no question. They're Bronze Age petroglyphs. They're very different than the petroglyphs you'll find in other parts of North America. Okay, so uh, you know, you're saying that the uh, transatlantic crossings were going both ways. Yes. Because one of the things we know is that the earliest stone hinges were in Canada, and perhaps here too. We're, that's one of our sites. Is there's a there's an early form of stone hinge, actually about a half mile from my house. We're waiting to get permission to go on the mountain and photograph it. But it it's a definite archaeological site, and it's a stone circle made of large boulders, just like the early form of Stonehenge. So, uh, what? Dr. Gordon Freeman of Alberta University in Canada has long had strong evidence that the people who built the first form of Stonehenge came from Canada. The, the Stonehenges in Canada are about 500 years older than those in the British Isles. We don't know the age of this one, and I don't know if we'll be able to, but we have two stone circles here in the Soki Valley they were going to try to get some idea of their age, but they're they're very old. Could be four to five thousand years old themselves, or more. Okay, and Richard, since you're you know we're getting into you know these ancient migrations and uh, custom <clears throat> customs following, yeah. Uh, and being brought to the area with the uh, uh, people uh, settling there, it, it, there's uh, you know one of those. Uh, uh, I think it was like the first uh, uh, America Unearthed episode that had that Mayan blue. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was color, going color. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> The program was based on my book, <laughs> so they didn't tell you that, though. Okay. Uh, uh, including uh, the Maya uh, books. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, that's worth talking about. So, uh, you know, what what is this Mayan blue? That uh, Obviously, that's uh, being an idea being brought to, uh, was it Georgia, where uh, where that yes. episode was filmed? Uh, yes, yes. It was, film, actually it was filmed at my cabin in Georgia. <laughs> okay. I got intimately familiar with that program. <laughs> okay. They they didn't, okay. and in fact, I was the one that brought up the issue about the Maya blue in my book, and then they, they didn't tell you that, or they made it think that, that Scott's idea, but that's fine. Now, what 
I get our international listeners, and I'm sure other parts of the country, why would anybody come to Georgia? Well, uh, we had a very massive volcanic range here in North Georgia in ancient times, and maybe not so ancient. I'm finding black lava rocks and lava bombs in my land here. I just bought an old fixer-upper on a mountaintop, and I am finding fairly young lava bombs, you know, black lava that came from somewhere around here from a volcano. Most people don't know we're geologically active here. But those volcanoes pushed up enormous amounts of gold, copper, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, you know, precious stones, uh, pure copper. And it was always an attraction because the rich minerals here and the, uh, the pulgite is a chemical that is found in the coastal plain of Georgia, but it's, it was washed down from the mountains. And it, uh, the one the deposits in Georgia is the largest in the Western Hemisphere. It was the only place really the people of Teotihuacan and the Mayas could go to get a sizable quantity of atapokite in order to make their Maya blue. And they also had other pigments like red and green that had this chemical in it. But it made the dyes and the plaster very, very tough where they would last for centuries by adding this chemical to the coloring. And that's the story of Maya Blue. Um, But that's why we have the purest gold in the world here. In fact, the Nakuchi Valley was where the first gold rush occurred in in, the United States, major gold rush. And the reason is that still the gold here is pure, more pure than any other gold in the world. And so in earlier times, we understand there's like gold nuggets just laying on the ground, almost like a fairy tale. And that would have attracted people from long distances to come here and uh, just pick up gold off the ground, stream value. And, in fact, we have a rock. I I sent images of it to your website. It's called the Tugaloo Stone. It's on the headwaters of the Savannah River, about 21 miles east of where I live. It's at the point where the trail leading to the gold fields leaves the Savannah River. On this rock are portrayed at least four Bronze Age ships, and the rest of it's covered with Scandinavian petroglyphs, mainly having to do with the, uh, the constellations, navigation symbols, uh, time symbols, date symbols, that sort of thing. But you would, you would also find those in sites in southern Sweden. So we, and it, it's and it's been owned by the state. It was, it's been the same location since 1795. It's on a state historic site. It's real. It's not. There's no question about its authenticity. Okay, and and, and Richard, you just mentioned um, you know, gold, and you know uh, people can l- learn uh, you know, m- more about. What you're doing if they go to peopleofonefire.com yeah. and on you know on you know your uh, all the information you have on you know your blogs you have on your website. Uh, you do, yes, we also uh, have a channel on YouTube now. That's actually the best source of information. I've so far I've done 26 videos, and it's called it's just the People of One Fire channel on YouTube. They're 
There's no advertising, and it's the most up-to-date information we have on our research projects. Well, you'll find it. We have five videos just alone just on the petroglyphs in North Georgia. Okay, and you have a really interesting one on, uh, you know, the copper mines in Central America. And, yeah, and yeah, you 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 note the similarities between uh, yeah, the house constructions, the, the yeah. and the village layout. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, since you know we've already discussed the Mayan blue and uh, the language similarities, the house structures was yeah, another uh, commonality between uh, two distant. Uh, you know places that are uh, ba- you know ba- basically look the same. Uh, uh, so, so what's going on with the uh, you know the copper uh, mining in, in the houses in both areas? Okay, um, this is very recent information about the co- the petroglyphs down in Mexico. They're located in the Copper Mountains. I actually spent over two weeks in Tepoztlan, which is the the town next to the site. Uh, according to Mesoamerican tradition, the first city in the Americas was at Tepoztlan, founded by Quetzalcoatl. And what the Mexican archaeologists have discovered are boulders with petroglyphs on them that are identical to the ones in North Georgia mountains, but also identical to the petroglyphs on the southwestern corner of Ireland in County Kerry. They're identical, uh, and so that evidently uh, pre-Gaelic Irish copper miners sailed as far as Mexico and then went inland to the Copper Mountains where they have a situation there. It's also volcanic-like here, and there they have some of the purest copper in the world. So it's it it like the gold situation here. We also have copper here, but not large quantities. Uh, but down there, it was just a, the mountains were pure copper, and they were that would have been the attraction for people to come very far during the ice age. And I'm sure our Scandinavian listeners, as they know, there was no source of copper in Sweden until the 1700s. Until that time, uh, people in Scandinavia had to go to other parts of Europe to get copper. And then the, as the Swedish pushed northward into Lapland and pushed aside the Sami, they discovered large copper and iron deposits in Lapland that now furnish much of Europe's needs. So that that's so that would explain why, you know, 1200 B.C., people would be willing to sail cargo ships all the way from Scandinavia to North America to get copper is because there was no copper available in Scandinavia at that time. Okay, and uh, Richard uh, had a uh, Dennis, one of our listeners, uh, want to know if some of these stone structures in you know, the Georgia, North Carolina area are very similar to these stone structures in the Northeast. Well, there are have you stone seen? structures in North Carolina. They're all in, in the city of Georgia where I'm in, and the answer is no. 
Okay. No, our stone structures are like those in Mesoamerica. We have terrace complexes. We have 16 terrace complexes, which are identical to what you'll find in central Mexico and southern Mexico. They're, you know, uh, mountainsides that have a series of stone walls for for farming. We have stone pyramids. Uh, We have oval-shaped stone mounds. We have ceremony walls. We have effigies. The, The largest stone effigy in North America is near me on an island in Lake Burton. It's a acre size turtle and uh, that's one of the places we're going that that was discovered back in 1986 Um, but basically the stone structures here harken back to connection with Mesoamerica and South America and and, as as, as I said the, the petroglyphs here are different than the rest of North America they are like the ones in South Western Ireland and southern Scandinavia, they're identical. There's no difference whatsoever between our petroglyphs and those of Bronze Age Sweden. Okay, uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting that uh, both of our guests have uh, really focused on you know the importance of these effigy uh, mounds to uh, the native cultures and you know, the ceremonial importance. Of them, and, 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 and uh, Richard, since you were just bringing up um, uh, a connection between you know, Georgia and, uh, uh, I said uh, ca- County Kerry in Ireland, mm-hmm. um, are, you know, are, are you seeing any uh, s- similarities in? Uh, words, yes, being uh, okay. Uh, what I, I've heard a little bit about that, like uh, the Welsh language being uh, found in the uh, native language. Uh, what what have you heard about uh, the uh, Gaelic? So well, I hadn't heard. I'm doing the research, and keep in mind the difference okay. with me and these other people is I am Native American. Every all this other stuff is people who have no direct personal connection with the culture, you know, making up theories about it. Well, um, the Yuchi are not from Asia. Uh, that's, that was the oldest tribe in Georgia. They always said that they came across the Atlantic from the home of the sun, and when they got here, there was no one here, but they could see the mounds built by an earlier people. So we think they came around 1,200 from either Ireland or Scandinavia. Yuchi itself is the pre-Gaelic word for water in Ireland, and they were always called the water people here when in the Creek name was Akate, which means water people. Um, they have several other uh, parts of their language that can be traced directly to the, the people of Ireland and southern Scandinavia. And let me explain something. Bronze Age... Scandinavia was not occupied by Germanic peoples. They were occupied by Celtic peoples. So the language in Ireland and Sweden would have been about the same back then. There's, in fact, some of the people in Sweden, the Picts, came from from Skåne and Sunderland in Sweden to northern Scotland. They migrated. But anyway, the words particular, um, the 
the word for tribe or or people in Gaelic Irish Irish Gaelic is gi. Uh that is also the suffix for tribe or people in the Algonquin languages, the Cherokee language, the Muscogee Creek language, and the Southern Shawnee language. Muscogee Creek. Now the Amishati Creek we speak a Maya dialect. So we use the Maya suffix for people. But on the other hand, the Yuchi, for their word for their suffix for tribe or people is this, is the same. It's also you see in Ireland, but it predates Gaelic. It's the original people of Ireland. That's R-E, Ray, like Corre, which uh, the county Curry, uh, which means dark people. Mm-hmm. So we're finding mm. other words, um, like I'm on Alec Mountain, uh if you're any Swedish listeners right now, you know the word for doctor is lector. Well, that the old form was alek, and so actually the mountain I'm on has a Swedish Bronze Age name, the root word being alek, with a being a, a back then a, a word way that languages and Germanic languages made a verb into a noun. And uh, like I'm a going to town, English does the same thing. So here's I'm on a mountain with a Bronze Age Swedish name, and in fact, Alec became the Creek word for medicine and doctor, the same word it meant back in Scandinavia, and that's why wow. even to this day Alec is the Creek word for a medical doctor. They say that they absorb words from other languages. Um, so it's it's. I, I'm having you know, I say these things that's so so far out. In fact, I wouldn't even believe them two years ago until we started seeing a closer look at these petroglyphs. But I have to emphasize that I'm telling you what we found, not trying to prove a theory. And there's a difference. I'm I have no axe to grind, and just reporting. We you know there's absolutely no difference between the petroglyphs in North Georgia and those in southwestern Ireland and southern Sweden. They're identical. And if so, and if we have the DNA, uh, again, this is a funny story from when I was in Sweden. Everybody thought I was a Sami. That's the people who live in Lapland. And, uh, in fact, one time I beat a traffic ticket because I pretended to be a Norwegian Sami who didn't understand Swedish. And I looked so much like a Sami that the, the cops in Landskrona believed me. He just said, and they so didn't. And as, as they walked away, he said, "Why did they let these stupid Norwegian Sami into our country?" <laughs> I was on a bicycle, by the way. I was speeding on a bicycle. They claimed, but uh, I was I was, had, I was late for a date with a co-ed at Lund University. But um, and now I know I carry Sami DNA. Uh, one of my cousins is a PhD at the University of Tennessee. And, specializes in such things um, and he's been studying our family and we carry Sami DNA in addition to the Native American we carry Polynesian and we carry pre-Gaelic Irish which and we knew we were part Yuchi in addition to being Creek and so that explains why we look so much like Yuchi is because or like Sami is because basically we are part Sami okay. and I, even in, in, in Lapland I would have Sami uh, asked me for directions. You know, they didn't realize I was a foreigner. You know, I'd be going along and, you know, can you tell me how far it is down to the next road? <laughs> <laughs> they were asking me in Sami, not in Swedish. 
and I had no clue well, what I, they were saying. But anyway, that's that's <laughs> it's, it's it's a big mystery now. I'm just reporting you what we're discovering. We continue every weekend. We find more and more stuff, but I don't have a final answer. It's merely this is where we are this week. This is what we've discovered. We might find other things next week that'll change it all. But anyway, that's where I am right now in the process. And, and, and you, and you are. You know, I think all of us are doing our own. Um, Voyage of discovery, and mm-hmm. you know, you're using a lot of uh, yeah, you know, some of the most advanced technology in a DNA. Yeah, I, do. DNA yeah, and, I, I, I yeah. use stuff that I would use an architect and city planner. I'm using pretty advanced. And also, yeah. I, I, keep in mind how many people know Swedish, Spanish, and Creek languages. You know, you know, I, I, that's part of the reason I'm able to do this. Is I am a Creek Indian, so I know. I can't speak it, but I can certainly read it, and I know the meaning of words. Yet I also know Swedish and Danish and Norwegian and and Spanish, and also some Panoan and and some Maya, and so I can cross these bridges that, that often ac- uh-huh. academic people they're so focused on one subject like Maya studies they don't see anything else, and by being a multicultural person, I can jump back and forth. And, you know, the fact I actually lived in Sweden and lived in the Bronze Age, Sweden portion where the Bronze Age was most prominent. So that gives me an advantage. I can see things that other people can't by having those multicultural roots. And you, know, you uh, hold the the office of uh, being a, a tribal historian for... The, uh, Not Greek anymore. Oh, oh, no, okay. I was, no, I was elected principal chief of the tribe in November. <laughs> the chief, <laughs> and they okay, moved so the tribal headquarters from Alabama to here, so double whammy. Okay, so, so we'll, we'll be celebrating the Creek New Year in June here in the Nacoochee Valley for the first time since probably 1700. Okay, so 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 you got that promotion, but you, you know, you, you, yeah, you really. Have studied uh, your you know, your heritage and yes. You know, and I was, it, uh, five years, I was a consultant to the Muscogee Creek Nation, which is the the biggest Creek tribe by far. They're out in Oklahoma. I was there. there was doing uh, architectural history research for them for five years, and um, that's where I learned a lot, or at least and, opened and, the door for me. Yeah, and you. Yeah, you, know, you also uh, were the architect for the uh, Trail of Tears Memorial. Uh, can, yes, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your work with that uh, memorial? Yes, they they have a had a Oklahoma sculptor, Oklahoma Creek sculptor, and they looked around for a someone from the homeland that was Creek and an architect, and they contacted me. I didn't even know about the project. I didn't I didn't have to compete for it. The state of Oklahoma called me up and said, could you be our architect for the Trail of Tears Memorial? And I said, nah, I'm not interested in doing that. That's, that's boring. <laughs> no, not really. I said, yes, real quickly. And um, so that's how I got that job. It's in uh, Council Oak Park in Tulsa, and everybody likes it. It's... Uh, 
not a big memorial, but it it is very symbolic and it uses materials from both Oklahoma and Georgia in it so that we symbolize the, the bridge between the two areas. Okay, and um, it's, you know, this is, you know, a lot of what we've uh, discussed tonight with the transatlantic crossings and uh, migrations from uh, Central America aren't uh, all that well uh, known. Um, you know, you, know you, you also have uh, you know, dabbled in the uh, giants as well. That's uh, become one of Barbara and my favorite uh, topics. Uh, that's uh, not being as well known. Uh, de- de- deliberately, we don't know that that subject as well because it is being suppressed. What's well, we're yeah, we're, we're descended you, from the giants. Okay, yeah. we're super tall. We're we're average a foot taller than Europeans, and. Um, but we in Mexico the Totecca were the tall ones and that another term for the the tall Indians in Mexico and uh so it was very common to have seven feet tall leaders among the creeks. They find their burials. Um but it's not a it's not a mystery, it's not weird, it's just how the way we're genetically we're taller than most people and, and in fact mo- most people don't realize it's just been announced by the National Geographic article that Native Americans are the tallest people on earth on average. And so there was always a misconception about Europeans that they were taller than Indians. That's not true. Actually, if you average all the Native Americans in the Americas, they come out being slightly taller than Europeans or in, in Africans. And then among those, the, there were certain tribes, uh, the Creeks and the ancestors in Mexico were one of them. And then there's also super tall Indians down in southern South South America, down in Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, that are up like that now, seven feet tall and six foot, whatever. Uh, like the creek foot is is 13 inches. Uh, the creek yard is six foot three, and that probably was like a standard size for a creek man, what a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, when most humans at that time were five feet four. Uh-huh. But but the Spanish said that when they came to Georgia that the, the these were the ancestors of the creeks they're meeting that they averaged a foot taller than the Spaniards, and that's how they're wow. the the French pretty much said the same thing. There's paintings done by Jacques Lemoyne of the Indians on the Georgia coast, and they they look at least a foot to eighteen inches taller than the French. Okay, so yeah, you're. You know, you're just another one of our guests who have uh, confirmed the presence of giants from around the world. You know, Gary Wayne I mean, and his. I don't understand why people are opposing. I mean, it's like it's not a big deal. Yes, there were some humans that were very, very tall, and some humans were pygmies. It's no, it's no. But this scene is you're right, there's this current movement by bureaucrats and anthropologists in some sectors 
to suppress information about super tall people when it was never any doubt about it. There was eyewitness accounts and there's skeletons. Uh, you know, what else can you say? It's no big deal. It's just that they've made it into a big deal, and I don't understand why they're trying to suppress it. Uh, I, uh, Barbara, I don't understand it either. It's just uh, they show up in the archaeological record. They're there and deal with it. Yeah. I mean, the the commander of Creek Forces during the American Revolution was seven feet tall and 93 years old. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's eyewitness accounts from both the British and the American officers, you know. He was seven feet tall, and he was not that unusual. And then the, the paintings of the Creeks who went visited London in 1735, all giants compared to the British. You know, they they have the paintings side by side and the, the creeks are noticeably much, much taller than the British. And again that's a accurate, very accurate painting that now still hangs in Westminster Hall. So it's no huh. big deal. It's all a fact and I I really don't understand why it's oppressed, but somebody feels inclined to do that. Yeah. Oh, uh, we just want to give uh you know, an accurate uh Reconstruction of America's prehistory. Hey, uh, yeah. uh, Richard, we're yeah we're down to uh, like two minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you, you want to give out any you know, your uh, website, the any, any upcoming appearances, anything like that? Uh no, I don't have upcoming appearances uh, that I know of. But things always happening. Um, well, I have my books are have fifteen books. Some are more up to date than others. They're available from Lulu Publishing or for Amazon.com. And two of the books are with Ancient Cypress Press. And for free edification with the latest information we have, you can go to our People of One Fire channel on YouTube. There's no advertising. And just listen to them. They're not Hollywood productions. Basically, they're glorified slideshows with music and me talking. But still... It's the latest information that we have on our research is on YouTube. It's okay. free. And okay, now we're uh, getting getting pretty close to the end. So, uh, you know, our our guest has been Richard Thornton. Um, and you can go to his website, peopleofonefire.com, as well. Uh, we have about a minute left. Um, we have two shows next week, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Both are uh, going to be excellent. And let's let's see. Uh, hey, I want to you know, let people uh, know: uh, don't speed on your bicycle. Yes, and I, I have a message to my friends in Sweden. I'll tell them good night and sofra. <laughs> <laughs> Time to say good night, Mark. All right. Hey. hey. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, uh, Barbara, for uh, producing this. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime soon. Good night, everyone. We'll see you uh, next Tuesday.